Ave Maria Mutual Funds, seeking the moral high ground for 20 years. Pro-life, pro-family, and Catholic values have guided us to the top. I want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Real Estate for Life. If you're thinking about buying or selling a home or moving to a more family-friendly or Christian area, please consider going to realestateforlife.org. They will pair you with expert real estate professionals who share your faith, and they will also contribute a portion of their commission to a pro-life charity of your choice, all at no cost to you. So to connect with a pro-life realtor, please visit realestateforlife.org or call them at 1-877-LIFE-US-1. Hello, and welcome back to A Reason for Hope. I'm your host, Mario Costabile, and I am honored that you're listening to us today. And uh, we're back. You know, we're back from a nice long break, and it's great to be here with you once again. And I can't believe it that we're rolling into season four. This is really amazing for me. Praise God. And you know, we owe this all to you, our faithful listeners. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Our podcast has truly grown over the past four years, and we're always trying to record topics that are relevant, but also what our listeners want to hear. In this new season, we're going to offer three powerful shows under the A Reason for Hope podcast umbrella. As we've done in the past, we're going to have a show that features interviews with nationally known Catholic personalities, which has been very successful for us. And then our Reason for Hope Candid, featuring our young adult team members having longer form discussions with Catholic influencers. And lastly, a new addition. We will have Dr. David Hyduck and myself having discussions about Catholic teaching. This season, we're going to be delving into the creed. Very, very cool. And by the way, we have been very open to uh, your ideas and your comments online. And we want to hear your comments and thoughts and ideas by emailing us at podcast at arrayofhope.net. Make sure to subscribe and follow us on your favorite podcast app so we can walk together on this journey of faith. We also ask you to prayerfully consider going to our donation page and help us in this really important work. Our partnership with you will allow us to create these podcasts. So go to our website at arrayofhope.org. So our first guest for season four is Dr. Peter Kraft. He was on our very first season and he is coming back with some really amazing wisdom and insights about our culture today. Dr. Peter Kraft is a professor of philosophy at Boston College and at King's College, a convert to Roman Catholicism. He is the author of over a hundred books on Christian philosophy, theology, and apologetics. Some of these books include Handbook of Christian Apologetics, Christianity for Modern Pagans, and Fundamentals of the Faith. All of these books are amazing. He is truly a prolific writer. So please welcome Dr. Peter Crane. So, uh, Dr. Crafe, uh, so wonderful to have you back on Arisa for Hope. You joined us uh, our very first season. Thank you for joining us again. How are you? Uh, all right, I hope. One never knows. 
<laughs> well, you look great. Uh, I just found out I was doing my due diligence and trying to catch up on your life. And I, I didn't realize that uh, you're 85 this year. 86. God bless you. I mean, you look fantastic. I, I hope I look half as good as you when, when I'm 86. I'm healthy. I'm blessed. Amen. Amen. So uh, for those of you listening and watching that don't know, uh, Dr. Peter Crafe is a philosopher, is a theologian, an author. And by the way, last time I checked, you wrote a little over 100 books and you're still writing and you're so prolific uh, as well as a teacher. Uh, you've been a teacher at Boston College since 1965. That's incredible. I think uh, that's the Jurassic Age, right? There are dinosaur footprints in I our mean, Pretty, pretty close. I mean, that's a long time ago. Uh, I'm thinking most of the people that are watching this barely remember the 60s. Uh, uh, so that's that's, that's kind of cool. Um, so uh, I, I want to, I guess one of the things I want to start with you is that you're you're really down to the core of philosopher. And how did you fall in love with philosophy? What was the, what inspired you to, to go into that field and become a philosopher? I love ideas. I love words. I love writing. I love poetry. I was an English major in college. Uh, and... Uh, my philosophy teacher was wonderful, uh, and he noticed that I was always arguing about things in English, so uh, got into philosophy. I think most of us choose our careers due to personal examples. Through your books, and I've read several of your books, uh, in, in many ways, I mean, to the core, you're a philosopher, but uh, the study of the fundamental nature of knowledge, reality, and existence, I mean, that's what philosophy is. I mean, essentially, it's understanding reason. How do you teach this in, in your classes? How do you teach that? Not by myself. Uh, I teach it by the great books. Through examples, you mean? Yeah. I think the ideal class is always a trialogue. It's not just a monologue from the teacher, and it's not just a dialogue with the teacher and the students. It's a trialogue, and the most important person is the great philosopher who we're studying. So here's me, here is John Doe, and here is Socrates. And you're a convert, right? So... Um... Did philosophy, uh, did philosophy play a role in your conversion to Catholicism? Yes. Uh, as a philosopher, I converted to Thomism before, uh, as a believer, I converted to Catholicism. That helped. Uh, and my conversion was rather intellectual. I, I asked my question, uh, this question, is the Catholic Church what it claims to be? Is it the Church established by Christ? Are her teachings true? Uh, and that seems to be a very complex question, but I didn't have to work through all the issues one by one. I think the historical question of uh, how did the church originate? Is it indeed the church that Christ established through his apostles? Uh, the answer to that question is very clear. Most Protestants I know uh, don't think very much of church history. They ignore the historical continuity and the continuity of teaching for uh, millennia uh, that goes back to Christ. And why is that, you think? Well, the more you get into church history, the more you see that the early church was Catholic. I remember asking my uh, Protestant teacher at Calvin College, who uh, was a very good and honest man, uh, if my Catholic friend and I both took a time machine and went back to the early church and worshipped together, who would feel more at home, I as a Protestant or he as a Catholic? And uh, uh, he said, oh, you as a Protestant. And I said to, to myself, well, I'll test that hypothesis. So I'll read the early church fathers and see how Protestant they were. Well, you can imagine the result. I read the early church fathers and I found how Catholic they were. It's amazing that uh, 
something so logical. I mean, uh, who were closest to Jesus? The apostles, right? And and who were closest to the apostles were the disciples of the apostles, most of which were the church fathers. And it makes sense. It's logical. What's amazing is that people don't understand that rationale. Well, we're not logical. I've discovered, uh, one of the things I've discovered more as I get older is how illogical and stupid I am. That's (laughs) that's lesson one. Socrates keeps teaching that. Uh, well, speaking about Socrates, so you wrote this new series on the history of philosophy, Socrates' Children, an introduction to philosophy from a hundred of the greatest philosophers. So first and foremost, what prompted you to develop this series? The fact that there's nothing quite like it, uh, there are long batches of books about philosophy, notably Frederick Copleston's, which are excellent and accurate and scholarly, but they're very detailed and uh, it's just too much. And one volume, Histories of Philosophy, aren't deep enough. So I filled the need. Uh, there's nothing in between. So I wrote mm-hmm. uh, four volumes and they're written for beginners. Uh, they're not written for experts, but they're not oh, dumbed down. Most philosophy books are either too easy or too difficult. I'm sort of in the middle. They have those books. What is it? Uh, philosophy for Dummies or something like that. So is this equivalent to that? So, so you could really understand it? Most philosophy books written today are written by so-called analytic philosophers. They emphasize logic, language, argument, calculation. Uh, they're usually quite intelligent and quite honest, but they sound like computers rather than people. Uh the history of philosophy is much more exciting, much more dramatic, much more personal, much more varied, uh, different styles, different methods. So I cover all the waterfront in my four volumes. And now it's being published from by Word on Fire, and I think that's a first for you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did that happen? The editor there contacted me and said, uh, your four-volume history of philosophy, published by uh, St. Augustine's Press, uh, fills a need that... Uh, nothing else fills, and we'd like permission to uh, to publish it and get a wider audience for you. So they made a deal with St. Augustine's Press that uh, uh, they share the, the profits, and they put out a, uh, a bigger and better uh, version of it, and it's selling quite well. So I'm writing other books for it. It's a wonderful organization. Bishop Barron's terrific. He's doing a great job, and they have a, a great sense of... of exactly what they're doing i mean you're you're in your mid 80s and you still have it seems like you still have the drive of a young man uh and you're continually writing what what inspires you do you always feel like there's something new that you need to share and 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 uh reveal to the culture i mean what what makes you tick to want to con- continually write like that in one sense i don't know the answer to that question uh don't know myself well enough to know the psychology of of how it happens in a sense, the obvious answer is God has something to do with it because he's the origin of everything good, including good ideas. Uh, and when I have the sense to shut up and listen, uh, I think he sends my guardian angel who says, well, Graves is shutting up now. Maybe I'll whisper something into his ear. Maybe he'll listen. Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. People ask me, what's my method or how do I do it? And I'm impatient with that. I, I, I just do it. It must give you joy. It must give you a sense of purpose. Oh, it does. It does. I'm I'm not very good at anything else. Anything that has to do with math or science or technology, I'm very clumsy at. Uh, so I, 
in my experience, God gives everybody some sort of handicap and some sort of talent. It's always compensation. In preparing for this interview, I didn't realize this, but one of your favorite books is uh, Chesterton's book on St. Thomas Aquinas, The Dumb Ox, right? Yes, that is the best book any human being in the history of the world has ever written. I, I haven't read that, and I will, uh, but it, it's about, you know, the philosopher and the champion of common sense, which is really important these days. So we live in such an age of unreason when common sense, as Chesterton said, is not so common, <laughs> right? So I, I, I guess my question to you, since you've been around a while and you've been around the block, I mean, how, how did our culture uh, come to this point? How did we become so lost and, and lack the logic of common sense? Oh boy, that's a long, historical, complex question. And the answer to that is read my four volumes. <laughs> uh, but there's a more important question whose answer is simple. How do we reestablish common sense? How do we get out of this mess? The answer is ignore the experts. Be honest, consult your heart. You've got common sense. You've got basic logic. It's, it's ingrained in us. The human heart was not designed at Harvard or at Hollywood. It was designed in heaven. Amen. Simple honesty helps. The more truth is obscured, the more you need a passionate honesty to find it. And, and that's not just true in our age. Every age has its own illusions. And God gives us enough light that if we have the, uh, the honesty and the passion to follow the light, we'll find the truth. But he doesn't give us so much light that everybody finds it automatically. You know, I, I speak with colleagues, I speak with uh, friends and family, and, and our culture has such a strong influence on everybody, especially the way the media delivers it. Uh, the, me the media delivers uh, content as, as it were fact. So I guess my question to you is that um, do people really, they don't understand a phil philosophical grounding, like how to really think logically with with uh, philosophy as a context. Can you share how someone could start thinking within that framework? First of all, what most people mean by philosophy today is a very small and specialized department, which is not terribly important. Uh, I could not name for you a single living human being who is a great philosopher, who I am assured will be well known a century or two from now. But there's another sense of philosophy that's much more normal and human and common and instinctive. And that's just honest use of reason to find the truth. Uh, so we're all philosophers. Cicero, a great old Roman philosopher, said, uh, if you say that uh, you don't do philosophy, that's philosophy. It's bad philosophy. We all have a philosophy. Even, even anti-philosophy is a philosophy. Because what the word means is simply the love of wisdom. And wisdom is something that comes from experience, uh, not just thinking. And it's something that always has a, a value ingredient in it. Uh, telephone directory has a lot of information, but it's not philosophy. Uh, and we all want that. We all need that. The question is, do we trust the media or do we trust our own heart? Like you had shared, you think that, you know, you'd said that we're all philosophers at heart, but I think... Um, there really lacks that ability of recognizing that, that we have the ability to reason, but most people don't, are, are shunned or, or distracted with the culture and, and what they believe to be the truth. There's two aspects to that. Uh, one of them is skepticism, which is a, a, a doubt that I could ever find the truth. That can be simply humility. The other is relativism, 
which is the opposite. It's a kind of dogmatic attitude that my truth is the truth. That's deadly. My favorite sermon of all time is the four-word sermon that God preached to St. Catherine in a vision. He said, there's only two things you need to know. Number one, I'm God. Number two, you are not. We keep forgetting that second thing. What is your opinion about uh, the importance of philosophical training in seminary? Well, if you're going to be a priest, you need to be a theologian. And if you need to be a theologian, you need to be a, a good one and a clear one. So philosophy is necessary. Uh, seminaries have always uh, grounded their theology and philosophy. Uh, it better be good philosophy and right philosophy. And seminaries are improving nowadays. In the 70s and 80s, they were into pop psychology and kind of relativism. Uh, the church is getting stronger. Uh, as the culture is getting sicker, we're, pre we're preparing some medicines, some, some vaccines. Amen. I mean, you know, as a layperson and disconnected from what that world is, um, I would think that, uh, I think uh, when, when priests are, uh, you know, c constructing their homily, for me, I am more moved by reason and logic coming to understand who God is and, and the purpose of Christ. And so I would think that philosophy is important in seminary, and maybe we should even bump that up a little bit so people can understand, you know, essentially the dumb, dumbing it down in a way that makes sense so people are convinced about the sacraments, the reality of the sacraments, what they do, the catechetical understanding of of really the teachings of the church. And I think philosophy can add to that. Don't you think? I think it can. There's three things that we absolutely need and that everybody wants and that we we want in an unlimited way. Uh, truth, goodness, and beauty. And reason is a natural instrument for truth. Uh, and, and the love of God and neighbor is the natural instrument for goodness. Uh, and uh, beauty is just so instinctive and important that we can't ignore it. So we need to do all three of those three things. We need better philosophy. We need better morality. We need, well, a while ago, the pictures, the moving pictures were Christian pictures. The media was at least favorable to Christianity. Uh, today, uh, Christian culture is, well, I wouldn't say dead, but uh, decadent, weak. That's the mission field. Go, go into the arts. That's where the action is. Mm -hmm. yeah. But philosophy, too. And, of course, morality, where, where we can all three of those. But nobody, nobody wants to be stupid. And nobody wants to be wicked. And nobody wants to be ugly. So those are three things that are, are, are lighthouses. They guide you. If you don't believe in truth or goodness or beauty, you're not going to want to be guided by them. You're going to go nowhere. You kind of alluded to this, and I thought you were going to mention it, but I know that you're unapologetic over traditional beliefs and our world. Uh, and, and, and even sometimes it seems that the church as well is, is moving away from tradition. Your thoughts? Casterton, one of the most brilliant minds ever, defines tradition as simply the democracy of the dead giving votes to our ancestors, the most disenfranchised of all classes, but the largest because we're just a small and arrogant oligarchy or minority that happens to be walking around alive on two legs today on the planet. Uh, and 
Tradition is a kind of a sifting mechanism. Things that have lasted, things that we have inherited, things that we haven't thrown away. They're, they're the things that have worked. Of course, tradition is not infallible, far from it. But it's much more likely that the consensus of our ancestors is correct than that our newfangled ideas are correct. Everywhere outside of technology, there's almost automatic progress in technology. But there's certainly not automatic progress in philosophy or in art or in morality. Good, the true, and the beautiful are timeless. They don't automatically improve. They don't automatically get worse either. It's up to us. And tradition, as you just, just stated, I mean, it is in a sense proven, right? People who don't like tradition think of it as some sort of oppressive tyrant outside of humanity. But tradition is human. It's our own ancestors. So to scorn tradition is, is incredibly arrogant. All these people who didn't have the good fortune of living in the 21st centuries must be stupid. Let's not listen to them. That's a very immoral and, and, and arrogant attitude. So if you're wondering how you can help this ministry, rating and reviewing this podcast is the best way to help others hear it, as well as sharing it with your friends and your family. So join us in this mission by rating, reviewing, or sharing this episode with someone you think needs to hear it. And we want to thank you for your continued support of A Reason for Hope podcast. We are grateful for our sponsor today, which is Ave Maria Mutual Funds. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are seriously different. As a leader in morality, responsible investing, their mutual funds have four moral screens set by a dedicated Catholic advisory board. The funds also have experienced professional investment managers with contrarian thinking. This helps assure that the investments match your moral beliefs. Call Ave Maria Mutual Funds today. Call toll-free 1-866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaMutualFunds.com. Again, call 1-866-AVE-MARIA. Yeah, and even speaking of the traditions of the church, it seems that we're moving further and further away from the beauty and, and the reverence of what the church held for you know thousands of years. Well, there's a much stronger reason for believing in tradition in the church, because that tradition comes from divine revelation, not just from human reason. Uh, and what is handed down is ultimately the teachings of Christ himself, God incarnate. And Christ said to his apostles, whoever hears you, hears me. And the church is apostolic, uh, and the church is simply this kind of relay race that hands down the, uh, the baton uh, from one to another, and it's the same baton. Now, the church is many things, and one of the things is it's a very human uh, organization full of sinners and, and idiots, uh, but its teaching is divine. Uh, one of the books that helped to make me a Catholic was a very anti-Catholic book, apparently. It was a, a, a series of essays, or short stories, rather, by Boccaccio called The Decameron. Uh, and he lived at the time of, uh, of the Renaissance when the papacy was quite corrupt. The Borgia popes were basically the mafia controlling the papacy. Uh, and one of his stories was about a pious bishop in uh, Paris uh, who had a, uh, an intelligent uh, Jewish businessman, Abraham, as his friend. They talked theology a lot, and the bishop thought that uh, the uh, Jewish businessman was on the verge of conversion. One day he comes to the bishop and says, I've got to take a trip to Rome and do some business with the Vatican Bank. 
uh, wish me good speed. I'll see you next year. And uh, the bishop said, look, I know you're on the verge of conversion. Uh, why don't you let me baptize you now? Why? Well, you won't see things clearly down there. It's foggy. Uh, I don't understand today, Abraham. Uh, but uh, business first, then pleasure. We'll see you in the spring. He takes the trip to Rome. The bishop said, I've lost him. You'll see how stupid and corrupt they are down there. And I'll never become a Catholic. He comes back and says, all right, I'm ready. Baptize me. Oh, you didn't live with the papal family? Yeah, I did. You didn't do business with the Vatican Bank? Yeah, I did. You know, and now you want to become a Catholic? I don't get it. Abraham's, I don't know that much about theology, but I know a heck of a lot about business. No earthly business that stupid and corrupt could last 14 days. Yours has lasted 14 centuries. It's a miracle. I'm convinced. <laughs> it works. An argument. Yeah. Amen. What would you recommend? How could how could we make tradition more attractive? I'm talking about the church now, the church tradition. How could we make it more attractive to the young we people can. today? We can't. It's the most attractive thing in the world. Just let it shine forth. Just expose people to it. Just teach it. Just 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 show it. Yes, show it. Reveal it. It's, it's it's very much like how do you make people saints? Well, saints make people saints. That's a good point. That's that's that, that's that's a that's a good point. Be an example, right? Yeah. Le- live a virtuous life. That in itself will attract people to you, which will attract them to the church. If you love God and love the church, nobody won an argument with Mother Teresa, even though she was hardly a philosopher. Uh, the beauty of a saint is an argument that has no refutation. Yeah, I want to share. I want to share just an experience I had. I had a reversion back to, um, you know, to Catholicism. I guess it was about twenty years ago, and I was on a retreat in Ohio. Um, There's a an apostolate called Catholic Family. I don't know if you know, have ever heard of it, but I went on this retreat out there, and uh, one of the things I saw were these young kids. uh, They were six and seven years old, walking up, processing to receive the Eucharist. Uh, and many of them kneeled and extended their tongue and received it on the tongue. And that was so moving, and I still get emotional about it, so moving and so profound that I said, there's something going on here. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. is hap- What is happening that these kids are showing such reverence and understanding what is happening? So to your point, and that's that's tradition. I mean, we've been we've been doing that for thousands of years. You know, being reverent in front of the Eucharist. So, you're right. I mean, if, if we want to change the church and bring back the traditions of the church, we have to lead the ones that we have to show and we have to engage and we have to be an example. Amen. Amen. I have another question for you. So, what do you think are some of the major philosophical errors uh, of our times today? The master error is what uh, Pope Benedict called the uh, dictatorship of relativism. Mm. Because if truth is subjective, then whoever speaks the loudest uh, wins. That that's reducing truth to power. Uh, I'm not. I'm not as afraid of atheists uh, if they're honest and tough-minded and skeptical, uh, and they follow that. Thing called reason, they'll eventually find the truth. I'm much more skeptical of the opposite extreme. No, I'm. I'm uh, what what do our prophets, our pop psychologists, our leading psychological authorities tell us we must do? What do what does every commencement speaker say to the students? You can be whatever you want to be. What a stupid lie that is! You can't be whatever you want to be. You are. Uh, 
made by God, not by yourself. You have a nature that you did not invent, and you better learn what it is and how it works. There is objective truth. If not, is it an objective truth? Is there no objective truth? Subjectivism contradicts itself. But it's hard to find the truth because you have to begin by saying, I don't have much of it. I'm pretty stupid. Uh, so you start with humility. And then you gradually make your way into the light. Yeah, that's a tough, that's a, that's a tough virtue, you know, just to, to be humble. And, and, and uh, one of the things Saint, uh, Mother Teresa had said that she prays for that always stuck with me. She goes, Lord, I need to be humiliated today. You know, uh, yeah. find a way that I am humiliated, and and that's a pretty incredible ask. This is one of this is one of the reasons God allows so much suffering. Suffering humiliates us. Use mm. it. We often do, but uh, it teaches us that we we are not what we think we are. We are not successes. We are not uh, in complete possession and control of what we know we want the most. We have very little truth, very little goodness, very little beauty. That's where yeah. we've got to start. That's not the end, but it's the beginning. Well, yeah, I was trying to do the math here while you were talking. So you started teaching at Boston College in 1965. That's over 50 years ago, right? Yes. Actually, I started teaching in 1962 at Villanova. Wow. Four years before BC. That's unbelievable to me. Um, so you've seen uh, a special a spectrum of students when you started in, in the 70s and 80s. You know that the Catholicity of many of our colleges have changed over the years. Uh, the importance of seeking God uh, and a relationship with God. Have you seen that change over the past 50 years that you've been teaching? Well, let me give you a very broad and unscientific generalization. Back in the 60s and 70s when I started teaching, uh, I think the student's basic mistake was a kind of naive optimism. We're going to change the world. We are the age of Aquarius. And that was not so bad because you know, teenagers think they can do anything and, and they take risks and whatnot. That was kind of natural. And then in the 80s and 90s, they became much more pragmatic. I just want a career. Uh, I'm here to make money. And that's kind of natural, too. It's very narrow uh, and certainly not enough, but it's not so bad. Today, students are much more confused. They, they, if there's one thing, one very particular thing that characterizes students today, I think it's their addiction. They're not addicted to, to sex or power. They're addicted to the screens. They're addicted to their iPhones. One of the uh, exercises I give the students, you want some extra credit, read a, uh, uh, write a philosophical essay on the following topic. How my thought and my world changed during the 24 hours where I resolved not to look at any screen, any computer screen, any smartphone screen, any TV screen. Uh, and about half the students who do the essay say, what I discovered was that I cannot live without my screens. That is my identity. I thought I could go without screens for 24 hours. I can't do it. Now, 50% addiction rate. Is there anything else in our culture that has that much of an addiction rate? Even pornography, you can leave alone for a while. They can't leave their screens alone for an hour. But we're addicted to different things in different ages. 
uh, whatever is not God and we treat as God becomes an addiction and an idol and it enslaves us. So we've got to be detached. We've got to get free. And in a sense, it's good that they're that they're suffering, that they're ignorant, that they're dissatisfied, that they're wandering all over the place. They're they're at least not fat, happy, and content. They're moving. Few people discovered that uh, the biggest religious change in the past few years is change itself. More people are changing their religion now than ever before in history. So that's, in one sense, threatening because we're losing more people than we're gaining the Catholic Church. But in another sense, it's promising. How so? How is it promising? Well, if more people are changing, there's more opportunity for change. Hmm. If people are set in their ways, uh, there's not much hope for conversion, either into or out of the truth. Gotcha. And in the rest of the world, outside of Western civilization, the church is growing. It's very healthy especially where it's poor, like in Africa, or where it's persecuted, as in China or uh, many Muslim countries. You know, I, I, I have to ask you this. I, I, I probably know the answer, but uh, I guess uh, you don't plan to retire anytime soon, huh? <laughs> well, God will put me on retirement when he wants to, but I'm not going to put myself there. I never understood the idea of retirement. If you enjoy doing what you're doing and you can do a good job at it, why not do it? Yeah, and, and just keep on going and... Uh, uh, so, uh, these, these new books that you've been writing here, the Socrates children, um, it's a series. Have you written all of them? You said you wrote four of them. Yeah. The history of philosophy is over, but I'm still writing other books. Uh, I wrote one called, uh, what would Socrates say? Uh, imagining Socrates introducing himself to a beginning philosophy student and teaching the philosophical questions by Socratic methods, which is always the best method. Uh, the best way of introducing students to philosophy is to introduce them to Socrates, it seems to me. So you've never written a book on the Socratic method? I've written, I think, 10 or 12 books in which Socrates uses the Socratic method in interviewing other philosophers in what to them is purgatory and what to Socrates is heaven. Uh, and I've written a couple of books on Plato, one on the Republic, uh, one on the Apology, uh, Socrates is just in my mind all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and for those of uh, the viewers and listeners that don't know what the Socratic method is, I mean, I, the limited I know about Socrates is that um, when you're in a discussion with someone and you want to bring them to the truth, you continually ask, when they say something to you, you rebuke it with a question. It's role reversal. The teacher becomes a student, the student becomes the teacher. It's really amazing. It works. When I started listening and reading, you know, Patrick Madrid, it's, he's like an expert at this, you know, and I started getting into it and I said, this is really great. I started using it with my kids. I started using it and, and I can't use it with my wife anymore. She knows what I'm on, you know, when I'm on, she's on to me. <laughs> so it's like, stop, stop, Mario. I know what you're doing, but it, it, it is, it is cool because it, it provokes thought, you know, uh, I've got so many colleagues, um, you know, because I came to the church or came back to the church later in life, um, you know, my, my profession was in music and film production. So I've got a lot of people in show business that, you know, think I'm like a Jesus freak now. It's like, you know, Mario's like lost his mind. But when I get involved, I mean, look, you know, as well as I do, you know, the Lord implanted innately. We all have our soul, which is made in the image and likeness of Christ. We all have a desire to know God better. So I poke at that when I'm having discussions with people, and I'm always asking them questions, which really works. People are flattered if you ask them questions. Because 
assumes that uh, they're wiser than you are and they want to teach you. And then discover by themselves that their position contradicts itself. So you're not, you're not slapping them in the face or bashing them on the head with the Bible. You're showing them uh, what's in them. And you just said it. You're flattering them. I didn't even think about it. You're kind of stroking their ego because you want to hear what they have to say, right? Exactly. You know, and, and it gives you an opportunity to ask even more questions and poke at their reason. I think it's brilliant for anyone, any parents out there listening that, you know, want to convey to get your, your kids back to the church or your friends or your relatives, your family. It's really so. Um, can you recommend any of your books that speak uh, on these techniques? Not one of my books, but one of the books of one of my favorite philosophers, Kierkegaard. Uh, it's called um, The Point of View for my work as an author. Explains, oh, oh, this was written shortly before he died. It explains the Socratic method in his other books very well. Awesome. But uh, the best person to read about that is Plato himself, who wrote Socrates' dialogues. You learn by example. You learn by by contact rather than by figuring out the method and then doing it. Well, listen, uh, uh, Dr. Kreef, I mean, I could talk to you all day. I really, uh, I really enjoy speaking with you. But I know that you you got things to do. You got to eat dinner. I'm sure you got to attend to various things, water your plants, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but uh, it, it's been fun. Uh, of course, there's no way that you can remember this, but I I I initially was introduced to you when you did a, a talk probably 15 years ago, maybe even 20 years ago in New Jersey, you spoke in, in uh, Patterson, New Jersey. And I'm saying, wow. Well, you said Wyckoff. We spoke and you said you were I from Wyckoff. I was born in Patterson. No kidding. Yeah, St. Saint, Saint Paul's Inside the Walls, I think you spoke at. It was in Madison, the Diocese of Patterson. I remember that. Do you really? Well, that's when I first met you. I came up to you and that was part You're of... You're not the guy who beat me so badly in ping pong, are you? I am. No, it wasn't, it wasn't me, but, uh, you know, it was the part, you know, the, the Lord has been tugging on my, you know, tugging at me my whole life. You know, I'm, I'm a cradle Catholic, but you were part of that, you know, that journey for me. And, and that's when I started seeing things a little bit more clearly and, and you, you speaking just so you know, I, I like sharing this stuff with people like you because you get to see the fruits of, you know, your labors, you yeah, know, yeah. Um, and it's good. You know, you're doing, you're, you're an amazing author and uh, example to the church. It's wonderful how God uses mere human beings to, to do his work. It, it, it really is. It's like Jesus choosing a, a jackass to get into Jerusalem. He's <laughs> <laughs> choosing the same animals. Well, listen, you know, I, I've, I've read a lot of your books. I've seen a lot of your videos. Listen, if things don't work out, you can always do stand-up because I do like your jokes. They're very <laughs> dad-centric jokes. I'm into those kind of jokes. I even wrote a book on the philosophy of humor called Ha. Really? Ha? Yep. Ha. H-A? St. Augustine's Press. A short little book. Wow. has my favorite jokes in it and, and a kind of philosophy of humor. It's very important. It brings us out of ourselves. 100%. It takes us out of this horrible self-consciousness. It's also a great way to connect people and relax people and bring people on the same page as you. It makes people happy. Yeah. You smile when you're laughing. You, you get people to laugh or you play music or you kind of joke around and, and it, it brings people to a form that they can uh, trust in what you're about Being to say. Being a comedian is a high and holy vocation. Amen. We've had so many of our comedians today are, are, are nasty and, and, and unhappy. Not all of them, but too many. 
Well, listen, uh, Dr. Kreef, you've, you've been a delight. Uh, I hope in another couple of years I can call you and bring you back and uh, I hope to meet you soon. I do travel up to Boston every once in a while. I'll look you up. Uh, God bless you. Uh, is there anything else that you want to share with our viewers and listeners that uh, you want to direct people to another project that you might be working on? No, but I want to thank you and all the listeners for, for, uh, for listening because teaching is not a one-person deal. Uh, and actually, I have learned more from my students and from my kids and from my wife than, than I've taught any of them. You learn more on this side of the desk than the other side. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's rooted in humility. And, and I want to leave you with one other thing, and I know you're probably going to get embarrassed. So you talked about saying, you know, I, no, I don't know of any philosophers in 100 years from now that are going to make an impact. I think you will. I think you've written some pretty amazing things. Um, so I just want to put that out there and say a big thank you once again. Well, maybe yes, and certainly no. Maybe yes, <laughs> in that I think I've written some good books that are going to be useful many years from now, but certainly not because I don't have an original philosophy of my own. Uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Augustine, Aquinas, those are my big five. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, it, it's hard to beat them, right? I mean, they could... It's hard to beat them, yeah. Yeah. Amen. Well, God bless you, uh, Dr. Kreif, and uh, peace be with you. And with your spirit. God bless. We are so glad that you joined us for this episode. I want to remind you to please share this podcast with as many people as possible. Stay connected by following us on your favorite social media platform at R4H Podcast. That is the letter R, the number four, and the letter H Podcast and also subscribing to our YouTube channel where you can see us on video. So thanks for joining us today. And there's always a reason for hope. This is Mario Costabile. Until next week, peace. Peace.